I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. The, the thing that I was going to say, um, because I you know kind of messaged you a little bit about on, on Facebook that I haven't really put out to people, um, last year I had a scare where I thought I had testicular cancer and I like rushed to the urgent care or whatever and had them check it out and they're like, well, it's not cancer. It's a thing called an epididymal cyst. Oh. Or, well- they thought it was a few different things. I went to a bunch of urologists. I was basically in and out of doctors for months. And eventually they were like, yes, this is what it is. It's nothing like medically life threatening. Like my health is not impacted by it, but it has been incredibly painful for the yeah. last like 13 months. Cause basically. it's pressing against stuff. I had yeah. one of those two before. Okay. So I've had surgery twice and it's both of them on my balls. Oh, geez. So I'm, it's, I'm sorry, man. And, yeah, uh, that really sucks. Mike. I thought really that sucks. this was that. Again. Okay. I thought that I had an I had that again, so I went in mostly to eliminate exactly what it ended up being. Hopefully, and mm-hmm. it wasn't. It was exactly what I feared it was. It was fucking terrifying, and but it's it's a weird thing when you you get surgery on this. Is that it just it takes time to recover from it? Yeah, it's it's an incredibly sensitive area. There's a lot of things that move around there, and it just sucks. Yeah, it's not not fun. Uh, this was. So much more, uh, what is the phrase? It's it's a much more intense surgery than what I had before. It's going in through my abdomen now. Yeah. Because it's not just the testicle they're removing. They're also removing the entire thing that goes up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a whole part of, of my lower abdomen, not my groin, but a part right above it that is still numb. It's like dentist office numb. Wow. And uh, it's nerve damage that is probably going to, take a year or so to get the feeling back there but yeah so you know i went to a bunch of urologists and they prescribed me all kind of antibiotics for months and none of it worked and so i went to a different uh urologist and they're like oh it's this thing and like we'll try this and that and you know anti-inflammatories and and nothing helped like basically i was just taking a high dose of ibuprofen to deal with the pain and that was the only thing i was getting at it and eventually they were like well we can do surgery, but the only thing that we're going to do is basically go in and sever the nerve so you don't feel the pain. We're not actually going to fix the underlying condition. Not going to remove the, the entire cyst? No. That's weird. They removed mine. Yeah, I don't know. But they were like, no, nope, we can remove your entire epididymis or we can sever that nerve. But those are the only things that we're going to do. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do either of those things because neither of those fix the problem. And I'm already living with the pain. So what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Uh, but thankfully... Like, the first, like, six months, it was basically constant agony. And then, like, the last seven months, it's been slowly but surely, like, the pain has been diminishing. That's good. Which is good. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's bad. Um, yeah, I, I got out of the place post-surgery where I didn't have to, uh, wear a support anymore. Uh-huh. That, that is nice, because when you have to go to the bathroom, it's like this whole ordeal oh yeah and there's a whole extra layer that holds things in place 
Um, I frequently had to put sort of gauze in there, not just because you press against things, but the waistband digging into your your sides does leave marks and get really uncomfortable over time because it's like imagine wearing underwear that tight for that long. Right, right. And it's just not fun. Um, and then your body leaks in various ways that is not cool. Oh, yeah. And it every time it scares you and you don't know what it is, you don't know if it's infected or not, or it's just... You know, and it's like, I think they had to dissolve these stitches in me. And then there was like a layer of this weird brown glue stuff. They had to keep the outside of it closed. And Jesus, that stuff would fall off. And uh, whenever a new section of that fell off, that section would get leaky for like a week. And it's just like the human body is just fucking disgusting. Oh, it is. It's absolutely <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> Basically, your 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 epidermis is like a thin sheath keeping in all the gross stuff it's it's disgusting and we should all be ashamed absolutely (laughs) but yeah and you know it's it's made all the worse by the fact that like this would be painful and embarrassing and gross regardless of where it is on your body but then the fact that it's in a very sensitive area and Mm -hmm. an area that society says it's not really polite to talk about that like it makes it that extra level of difficulty. And it's like, it's, it's already humiliating, but then there's the fucking C word that I'm dealing with. And the thing with that is it doesn't matter how treatable your cancer is. And my chance, my, I, if, if I had to to pick a cancer out at the, you know, at the store, Uh I, I would pick this cancer because this is the one that even when Lance Armstrong was he was like super advanced i mean it was like in his brain mm-hmm. that's how much that thing had spread by the time i don't know how he didn't feel that one of his balls had a growth on it i mean i noticed and i was stage one um but it would he he managed to treat that it's not like i mean it would take a long time to kill me i think um but that's not the kind of cancer that they make fiction about. Um, it's just, you know, every kind of fiction about cancer is about terminal cancer. Right. So, I mean, all of that comes at you. You start thinking breaking bad thoughts. And uh, I'm not in a breaking bad situation. Um, and, and And you can't really control the emotions of it because it's, you know, it's still this incredibly – it doesn't matter how much your brain – knows and has accepted the reality of how treatable this is, um, you will still get set off on these emotional tangents that will be utterly terrifying and emotionally overwhelming. And you just kind of have to ride them out and you never know what it is. It'll set them off and I'll be perfectly fine for a long time. And then I just, they my fucking sobbing mess hmm. and there's nothing you can do about it oh, except yeah. just feel it. And oh, yeah. It's it's not fun. It's not fun. And the worst part is that, you know, it moves so quickly from diagnosis to surgery. It was like so fast. I, I It was like a, within a week, they'd already chopped one of my balls off and I'm wearing special underwear, uh, sitting on the couch watching reruns of Star Trek, trying to, you know, take enough Percocet to, you know, you know, and sitting on a bag of ice and, and it's like, it gets better and better and better. I think I had like a week of Percocet and after that I'm fine. And it's just dealing with swelling. Um, and you just kind of get used to it cause it feels like you did something. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. um, as it goes on, 
you um you just kind of get numb to the whole situation. It's like you don't really it's like you your brain you get to the place where emotionally you're not even that close to it anymore. You're not in a doctor's office, you're not um having conversations about radiation or side effects or anything you're just kind of like recovering from an injury it's like a really really long you know flu uh-huh. the equivalent of that hmm. level of just discomfort and then you start getting doctor's appointments now because you've recovered enough and then it gets fucking scary again because suddenly it's real and you're having stations and you thought you were emotionally over it and then suddenly it's really raw again and it's just like you're looking down the barrel of this and you've had all this time to think about it. You know intellectually that this stuff is super treatable and I'm not going to die. And But, it, you know, th- there's just something about that fucking C word that just shuts your your brain off. And you go into this, like, lizard brain place where you just, like, you just don't want to die. Yep. And it's fucking terrifying. Absolutely. And you never know what's going to set it off. It's never It's never things that you think would emotionally set you off. It's just, like, little things. And, um, yeah, I had a, a scare about nine, 10 years ago where my brother almost died of appendicitis of all things. Wow. Um, Hmm. you know, he, he, his appendix ruptured and he didn't go to the hospital for like four days after that until his liver shut down and he started going into septic shock. Jesus. Um, and he was in intensive care for a month and he was just, he was like wrecked as a human being for like three years after that. Um, and like there was a long period of time where I just break down crying for no goddamn reason because I heard a sound that sounded like something in the hospital. Yeah. It's that, hmm. that's what it is. And it's like, it's just this pent up shit that you just kind of purge. It's, it's, you know, getting back to this idea of like a cyst, it's like, it is like a cyst. It's, Absolutely. A, it's an emotional Absolutely. cyst that it slowly fills up with fluid and you just got to cry that shit out. Yep. And you don't know what it is. It'll set it off. Like the thing that scares the shit out of me right now. And this is kind of shocking. I'm as emotionally stable right now as I am is that it's not the chemo that scares me. It's the fact that you're gonna have to put some sort of a port in me oh, yeah. to feed the chemo. Yeah. It's like joining the fucking Borg or something. <laughs> right. But it's like the body horror aspect of having that thing in my body scares me so much more than the chemo. That's hmm. interesting. And it just it freaks me the fuck out. They they don't they don't they're not just gonna do it's a, like an IV, just something in your, no, in your it's, wrist or it's a thing so you don't have to I mean, it gets it in faster, so I don't have to have, like, a five-hour chemo appointment. Oh, I see. But, I mean, it's – so they don't have to keep popping your vein like I'm in Requiem for a Dream over and I over see. again. So it's – but the fact that I have something in my body that's still going to be there when I go home, it's different than, like, okay, I've got a thing in my hand or my arm, and it's going to be gone in ten minutes, or I'm going to wake up and they're going to take it out of me. But it's going to be there at home, and I have to go in the shower with this thing in me, and it just freaks me the fuck out. That is fucking scary. Um, it is like locutus type shit, yeah. and it's like, <laughs> but it is. It's it's that kind of stuff that freaks me out more than any kind of nausea or whatever. I don't, you know, I don't know what it is. And again, it's that level of ignorance that I have that's based on the fact that cancer to me is something that I've experienced only through fiction. Mm-hmm. And chemo is a thing where, you know, Walter White sits down in that cabin in the middle of nowhere and there's an IV in his arm that drips what looks like Mountain Dew into him. And I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it's going to feel like. I imagine it would probably feel 
like when Superman gets near kryptonite. Yeah. That's that's the impression. Nausea, weakness, and pain. Um, I like that better than cancer. But, you know, I'm basically going to nuke this shit from orbit, and I'm glad I'm going to. But that port scares me way more. Mm. And I don't – it's That's just, interesting. There's a couple things that just freak me the fuck out. And I think that – like when I went in for my surgery and they told me they'd be putting the tube thing down my throat. And I think they saw a look of panic on my fucking face. And I just – all I needed to know is that it would be gone by the time I woke up. Because it would be like when Keanu is like pulled out of the Matrix – the the thing that scares me more than anything else, and I don't know why, is catheterization. Oh, oh fuck! Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, Jesus Christ! And you're, I get it. Yeah. The, to be numb to that, the people that you're able to put that into their own body, Jesus Christ! I can't imagine the sort of emotional callus you have to build up to be able to do that. And I'm like, holy shit, sir! I'm. Yeah. I don't think I. I don't know if I could get myself to do that. Well, Mike, it might be as with a lot of things that the anticipation. Of all of the shit that's swirling around in your head, will be worse than it, what, prob- what yeah. you know. It, it, it is definitely will. you. You are you're mulling around with it for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah, you know, and that's sometimes you, you're all you're almost always your own worst enemy in those yeah. in those yeah. aspects because sometimes you just can't shut your brain off. I, I yeah. you know, I mean, I'm I'm that way. Like I mull on, like I stew on things. I just grind on them and I can't get them out of my brain. Like I'm going to be starting grad school here in a couple of weeks. And there's a part of me that's scared shitless because it's been 15 years since I've been in any kind of academic environment where like I am being judged. Like I do work and I'm being scored on that work. And if I do not do well enough the first time I'm out, I'm done. And like an entire branch of my potential life is closed to me. Mm hmm. And the thing that like I keep telling myself is other people have done this before. People do this on a daily basis. Thousands of people all over the world do this. You can do this too. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be okay. Yeah. That's like, there's entire people who devote their lives to doing this shit on a daily basis. We have this figured out as a society. It will not be that bad. Yeah. 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 It's it. I get that. And then, and again, I, I wish that I could – I mean, it's it's very compartmentalized that mm-hmm. I have these two different parts of my brain that are in going into overdrive. There's the part of my brain – I guess you could call it the Spock and the McCoy. Mm-hmm. Spock is telling me that this is fine, that these people know how to do this stuff really well. And statistically, I'm about as safe as you can get. If you're going to get cancer, it's like this or very mild skin cancer or something, something where they can just chop a thing off, you know – the thing with testicular cancer is that there's a thing they can very easily remove, which is really not vital. And I really don't really need it anyways. I mean, I just need one for like hormone regulation, but that's really about it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's not a thing that is, you know, attached to the inside of my torso where, I mean, it's not like they're having to pull out my liver or something, you know, or, or, you know, I, I, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing that's very treated. My brain, that's, that's that side of my brain is saying that. And then the other side of my brain that just the emotional charge culturally of the, of the C word is just freaking me the fuck out. And there's no getting around that. No, there, yeah. there's no. no, there's no turning that part of it off. And sometimes you just kind of have to ride that feeling out. And, you know, that part of my brain just doesn't want to listen to Spock. You know, no. it's, it's, there's nothing Spock can say to make that go away. 
And, um, you know, it just is what it is. And I know it's super treatable. I wish that I had, you know, this Dr. Crusher level of technology where they could probably wave a blinky thing over me and I'd be fine in an hour. But, you know, instead they got to pump me full of some, some mild poison and, um, know that I'm tougher than this thing they're killing. And, you know, that's fine. I just want it to be done. It's just kind of a pain in the ass that, I mean, I'm going to have to monitor this shit for likely the rest of my life that I'm yeah. just going to have to go in for imaging probably at least once a year. Um, it's, that's a weird experience. I don't know if you guys have ever had a CT scan. Uh, I've had a CAT scan. I've never had the uh, an MRI. MRI is the one that scares the fuck out of me based on yeah. fiction. Have you talked to Joe about that? No. Joe. So Joe had thyroid cancer like t- uh, 13 years ago. Really? Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's, that's why his throat is so fucked up. Mm. That's why he's got that raspy voice. He didn't used to have that. He had thyroid cancer. Um, and so they basically just had to go in and like take his thyroid out and then like scrape his vocal cords to get everything out. Jesus. Um, mm. But he said that, you know, cause he's a bigger guy. He did not have claustrophobia before going into an MRI, but he sure as shit had it afterwards. Yeah. It's, um, just because, you know, it's that feeling of like I'm in this giant tube and if like the power went out or there was an earthquake, I could not get out under my own power. Yeah. Not that not I'm trying to hype you up. At all. Oh, I don't have an MRI. I, <laughs> right. A CT scan is a little bit different where they. Yeah, they're like moving you in and out and it's a big donut. You know that you know that thing you do with that gesture you do with your hands to go, ha ha, they're having sex. <laughs> yeah, it's basically you're the you're the, the straight finger yep. in that thing. And they yep. put you on a slab and they move you in and out of a big donut. Like you said, yeah, I've had about three of them. It's weird because the prep for that is so fucking strange that I'm not supposed to eat for like, I think like eight hours or something before that. So basically you just use gremlin rules. That's what mm. I always do, which is don't <laughs> eat after midnight. And then you give yourself way more time than you need. Maybe you can have some water maybe, but um, then they, in the two hours before they give you this stuff that it comes in these two large white cylinders and together it's a, the equivalent of, of a liter and it's contrast. It's the stuff so that they can see the stuff inside you better. And they say it tastes like berry. Um, it smells like berry or berry flavoring, but it tastes like chalk, but it's a little thick, but I got through that stuff pretty fast and then they get there and you get another one, like a swig of this like Dixie cup that's full of, there's a very dentisty type taste to it. It's very sweet. Um, and then they put this IV in your arm and it's more contrast. It's just contrast, contrast, contrast. And um, I bet it like responds to different wavelengths so they can look at different things. Yeah. There's no easy way to describe what it is that stuff feels like. It feels like very warm. And then oh, they say, yeah, that, that stuff, they say it's supposed to feel like you're going to pee, but it doesn't quite feel like you're going to pee. It feels, it feels like there's something moving and happening in your lower abdomen. Um, I think it feels more like diarrhea, but it, <laughs> it's, it's somewhere in between. Yeah, it's it's weird. And then they say you're going to taste metal, but you don't taste it on your tongue. It's like you taste it in your skull. And I don't really oh, know. Weird. It, I don't really get it, but it freaks me out. I don't know why you can taste something in your skull. And I don't know why there isn't some really weird vapey type person trying to create technology based on skull tasting because it seems like the sort of weird shit that somebody would be really into i just find it disturbing 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess vaping is killing people now, but whatever. That it, <laughs> <laughs> it feels a little bit overblown. It I, is overblown. I've been reading about it because, um, of course, I have a vape pen. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it is is it specifically has to do with THC mm-hmm. because with the nicotine ones, uh, nicotine bonds to water. It's water soluble, so they have water in them. THC is an oil. It is not water soluble so they have to have a binder basically to keep it as a liquid and so that it doesn't crystallize and there's a few different ones that they use and most of them are fine but there's this specific type of vitamin e oil or vegetable it's like a kind of vegetable oil basically where if that shit doesn't vaporize and it gets inside of your lungs it causes inflammation and it fucks Hmm. up your lungs Mm -hmm. and it like stays there so the more you do it, the worse that it gets. And so basically they've been treating people where their like lungs are so inflamed that they are literally incapable, like they're breathing, but their lung is not capable of taking oxygen in. Jesus. Mm. And like, I think all of the people who've been treated for it have eventually been fined. Like they give them steroids. They, you know, put them on oxygen, like they get them taken care of. But it's like you have to not only be smoking hash oil. You have to be smoking hash oil with a very specific additive that like is cheaper and is used generally like black market. Mm -hmm. So if you live in an area where you can just buy it at a store, you're less likely to have problems with it. And you have to smoke a certain amount of it in order to do enough damage to get enough of that shit in there that it's legitimately a problem. It also seems to it seems strange to me that uh, somehow this is this slight blip in there being you know, I mean, how many hundreds of billions of people now use a vape pen that this tiny blip in this is somehow scarier to people than lighting plant matter on fire and inhaling the raw smoke of like tar and like vegetable matter. That's basically like ash inhaling ash. Maybe, yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe humans, maybe animals maybe, are just OK with inhaling lots of ash, but maybe humans are just bad at judging risk yeah Mm. i think it's just been a while since we've had a good moral panic and uh, are you kidding we just had a resurgence of video game moral panic not a real not a real one that that's just old people and the old people that are kind of outnumbered by people in our generation. So I, so I mean, that's that's not as, even as bad as the moral panic over video games that we had 20 years ago. That's right. the real moral right. panic in video right. games, because that was the one where you could actually pass laws. Uh, we're not in a place where they can pass laws right now because... Um, it's too big of an industry. It's Absolutely. Too, that's part of it. It's too big of an industry that probably has a lot of lobbying money. But the other half of it, though, is that... Uh, what is the relative age of all of the people in Congress? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of really old people, and every time they have to bring somebody in the tech industry before some Senate subcommittee <laughs> to be questioned, and it feels like grandpa's calling tech support. It's embarrassing when those happen, by the way. Those are our elected officials who don't understand what email or, or Facebook or Twitter or any of these things are, and I'm like, fuck, all their young people that work for them do this shit. Anyways, that aside, um, aside from those people – um, anyone like 50 and under, um, grew up with some kind of video game system in their house. So it's really hard to build up this idea that this is this terrifying thing that is like a sociopath machine, that it's going to create a, a generation of psychopaths and murderers when even the members of the House of Representatives and the Senate grew up with a Nintendo or an Atari or a Nintendo 64 or a Genesis or whatever in their house. So um, it was a lot easier for, you know, baby boomers, 
like the Tipper Gores, the um, the Hillary Clintons, the Joe Liebermans, the Joe Liebermans well, to fuck that guy to yeah fuck that guy uh, to get upset about video game violence in the late nineties, but. You know, it's been about 20 years since those, that last moral panic, since everyone was freaked out about Mortal Kombat, which seems really quaint now. Well, weirdly. It, was, it was really post Columbine. Yes. A lot yeah. of that post Columbine. But again, it's the same thing that happened with comic book moral panic in the 1950s, which is that, um, everyone read comic books just as everyone played video games. So yeah. Um, it's like saying, well, the common denominator of all these mass shooters is that they're right-handed. I don't think that's the connecting tissue that's that's causing the problem here. That Everyone plays video games. Everyone of our generation played video games. Even more people play video games now because it's like our generation, our generation's kids. And it's like anybody, again, 45 to 50 and younger. So how many more members of Congress are there? Like Ted Cruz is not an ally on almost any issue whatsoever. But Ted Cruz is what, like five, six years older than us? Yeah, I would say he's probably in his mid 40s. Yeah. And you know what? He probably grew up with a Nintendo. And I think it'd be a lot harder to get Ted Cruz on board with the sort of 90s style bans on this stuff. And when even a conservative asshole... um you know, retrograde guy like him is going to have a hard time because the difference is generational. It's the same way as that, that people in the the baby boomer generation didn't have this as kids, so they don't understand it. And they don't understand what this thing is that all these young people are doing. And it seems new and scary to them, just the way that in the 1950s, those people did not grow up with comic books who were in office because that was a like a 20-year-old piece of media. Yeah, it's, they just didn't get it. It's incredibly fascinating to me that you have AOC in Congress, who's somebody who I absolutely adore. I have oh, the greatest yeah. respect for her. But one of the most potent weapons that she has in her arsenal as a politician is that she understands Twitter. Yes. Fundamentally on a level that 99% of people in Congress do not. It's, and I think that this is a skill that she just has. I love, I love Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I think she's my favorite politician. And she has an ability to do verbal kung fu in a way that I've not seen somebody do before. It's like that scene in Enter the Dragon where all those guys are attacking Bruce Lee and he's fighting them all off with a pair of nunchucks. <laughs> where you're like, holy shit, how did you do that? Um, it feels like that a lot of the time. And she does it, again, like with Bruce Lee, so seemingly effortlessly. And But again, um, we don't really have to worry about her generation, which I think is just a slight – it's like a millennial where I guess we're kind of really young Gen Xers. Well, I, I would say that you, you're the, the very tail end of the Gen X. I am the very like headmost or, uh, millennial. I was born in 82. Mm -hmm. And it's like that, that 78 to 82 bridge – the Star Wars movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> some people call them zennials. I yeah. don't know how I feel about that. But I would say that AOC is at the very tail end of the millennial generation. Yeah, that she's on the, the other end of it than you are. Yes, absolutely. So, but I mean, that there's a... I there's, mean, actually, there might be a... There are probably a few that are a little bit younger than her, because I think she, she is like 29 or 30 at this point. Yeah, so she's 10 years younger than I am. And so... When she got the internet for the first time, she would have been like 10 years old. Yeah, where I was, I Eight think, to nine years 14 old. or 15. I was in like high school. So when this sort of stuff happened, you know, when the idea of the internet being a thing. Um, so she's marinated in that for her entire life. So it's, 
she just knows how to exist in that world. And the difference between somebody like that, I mean, if she was to question Mark Zuckerberg, it would be very different than, you know, the famous Ted Stevens, you know, the internet is just a series of tubes type. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, you know, that bullshit. It's not like a big truck. Yeah. And he goes, I, I sent an internet and, and my staff didn't get that internet for three days. And it's that kind of shit where it's just like, it is old man yells at cloud. You really see the generational divide, which is Ted Stevens when he was alive. I guarantee you, he never used the computer. This was just stuff that younger members of his staff printed out and read to him. And I would guarantee you that a lot of people, and probably, actually, weirdly enough, the the president, the shitty ass orange fascist clownish fake rich guy president that we have knows more about Twitter than most of the people in Congress because it's it's his favorite toy. Um and it's it's just bizarre and he's an old dude. So and that's a, that's actually fairly rare. Most of them really don't know and I imagine that most of them are read by written by their staff. But with this guy, this shit that he pumps out is so fucking stupid it has to be him. But then you've seen some of the people working for him. Yeah, but absolutely. Anyways, <laughs> that's the stuff that I find just so weird, the generational change in it. I, do, I am not afraid of any kind of blowback or bans or any sort of thing on video games. One, they have way more money and clout than they've ever had. But also, you know, you have that generational design. A moral panic has exactly 15 years or so of real power where – the people who pass laws are ignorant enough of it that they don't really know what they're dealing with. All they know is that young people scare them. And that's when they start going, oh, my God, comic books are turning people into juvenile delinquents, uh, violent uh, rap music lyrics. Oh, my God, the kids are going to start. You know, it's like all of that hula hoops and and zoot suits and jazz music and every fucking thing that old people have been scared of. And then 20 years later, you grab a random middle-aged person who's serving as a, you know, member of the U.S. Senate, and you mention the, the fear of Dungeons of Dragons, and they'll fucking start laughing at you. That's how quickly these things, they go from zero to 60, but in reverse. They go from 60 to zero. And we're just in a place where Donald Trump is a really old man who didn't grow up with video games and is desperate to change the subject because the common denominator in a mass shooting is pretty fucking obvious. And he doesn't want to talk about people. It. Wait, wait, is it people? Well, if well, we pe- just had fewer people, we just, we just if that was the problem, then a mass ship, shooting would be the solution. But ship no, them, ship it would them be to a Mars. Self-resolving issue. <laughs> no, it, no, it's it's a fucking guns. We all know that it's a fucking guns. It, that you can't have a mass shooting without guns. You're a lot less effective if you go around with a machete. Uh, take that, Jason Voorhees. <laughs> I, I did have a very interesting moment just recently speaking about Dungeons and Dragons and moral panics. Where you know, this we live in an era now where like big name celebrities play Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most popular like web streams in the world right now is people playing Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Dungeons and Dragons is everywhere. I was explaining to my friend's 10 year old, the satanic panic of the 1980s. And he laughed in my face. Yeah. 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 It's crazy how, how widespread that was. You have all sorts of daytime talk shows that were talking about this seriously. Tom Hanks got his start in a movie (laughs) specifically calling out the moral panic of Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Mazes and Monsters. Mazes yeah. and Monsters, which is yeah. an incredible film and everyone should watch. The weird thing about that film is it's really bad at denouncing D&D. 
it just seems to denounce losing grip with reality because everyone else in his gaming group is totally fine. He's the only one that almost threw himself off of. Yeah, uh, like literally the entire rest of the group is fine. He's just the one guy who was like schizophrenic and <laughs> just happened to like have an episode his first year in college like a lot of people do. Yeah. Like that should really be a movie in favor of better mental health facilities. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no kidding. Just that, you know, you see you have a friend that needs help, help him get some help. And yeah. I said help a lot. Well, but, uh, uh, not only does the, because well, of course it was linked to Satanism, which was in and of itself this sort of like eternal evergreen bugaboo that you can invoke. And uh, I just watched the Hail Satan documentary this year. I didn't know this until a few months ago that we, we have, Mike and I have mutual acquaintances that are now part of the Satanic Temple, but... If you like see what Satanists do, like it's effectively like basically it's a political organization, a political social organization where it is all like theater to uh, oppose, you know, theocracy and just general stupidity. I yeah. guess. And then a lot of it is just intentionally provocative right. for the sake of being provocative. Then, and that was that's always standard for the quote unquote Church of Satan, like Anton LaVey. Um, what a crazy life that guy had, um, that essentially, I mean, he didn't like sacrifice people. It's not like he's a villain in a Conan story where he's got like a massive <laughs> altar and, and the blood of peasants running down it, but he's just a dude who liked to wear a cape, who played the calliope and had like a pet panther that he walked around the neighborhood and he got to essentially be Gomez Adams <laughs> for most of his life, knowing that just saying Satan was enough to scare people out. And he probably slept with Jane Mansfield. So I'd say good on him. Yeah. I, that sounds like winning to me. Yeah. And <laughs> that you basically get to, it is so Adams family. I mean, the idea that I'm a completely normal dude who's just into kooky shit and I'm a little bit bemused by how freaked out it gets people. I mean, it's that's really what a lot of the the satanic simple people do. No, I mean, the freaking out the squares was long, long a favorite pastime of people who are parts of various sub and counter cultures that, you know, kind of went by the wayside in recent decades, I think in part because of how easy it became to troll people on the internet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for many decades before that, just doing things for the effect that it would have on the mainstream was part of being in the counterculture. Yeah, yeah. And I guess especially when you go back into the 50s and 60s, you have such this repressed kind of conformist culture that was probably really easy to tweak. Oh, that, yeah. And you look at the birth of something like, say, Mad Magazine, that really came out of that because that was the comic book scare again that was almost designed specifically to put EC Comics, the people who did Tales from the Crypt, out of business. And uh, they decided, hey, the the organizing body that basically was a censorship board for comic books, the Comics Code Authority, sort of like what they did with, with music and video games where they came up with their own censorship board so that the government wouldn't step in. Um, but they, their censorship board was to put out one of their biggest competitors who was the one causing the most waves with sort of subversive, violent, scary comics. And um, that Mad Magazine was their last publication. They moved it from a comic book to a magazine format, so they were outside of uh, the regulation of the Comics Code Authority. And they basically just spent the next 30-something years um, 
basically poking fun at the stupid conformist culture that put them out of business and teaching children that adults are stupid. <laughs> and I'd say that's that's doing the Lord's work. Oh, yeah. That's an important lesson for kids to learn. It's, it's a hard one because we get so much, oh, adults are so smart. Listen, and it's like, no, you know, you grow up and realize all this stupid confusion you have about stuff where you're just like, man, I just don't understand. This doesn't make sense. That adults feel that too. They just pretend to not feel it. Well, because that's what's expected of you when you become an adult is that you don't walk around looking at the sky and wondering what's going on. You just kind of have to act as if, you know. The irony is pretending like you know everything just makes you stupider because you start to believe that you know everything. (laughs) You end up fooling yourself far more than you fool other people. I know people, it's strange that you get to an age and you, not a lot of people ask questions. I guess that's a, that's a funny thing is it's, it can be seen as I, I worked with a, I worked at a nonprofit for a very short period of time and there was a guy who was probably like 24, 25. Like he is, I'm trying to think of what a good fictional example of of his type of character is. He's someone who is incredibly beautiful. Um, someone who is clearly going to have an extreme amount of success in their life, and someone who you want to hate. Someone who you want to be like, oh, I I wish I was him. That's I, a whole yeah. subgenre of fictional except, characters. Except you can't hate him because he's super nice. Because he's nice and he likes you, and, oh. and he wants to be your friend in all the ways that are sincere and not in like a cloying false way insincere way okay so i know exactly what character you're talking about hmm. on the rockford files um the thing that launched the career of tom Selleck oh, was yeah. a couple of appearances <laughs> yeah, he made on the rockford files as a rival pi named lance white lance white has none of the problems that rockford has where the cops hate rockford he's constantly struggling with money um he gets beat up a lot his car gets wrecked um, he frequently doesn't get paid at the end of his stories. And Lance White is this guy who kind of walks in and everything is easy for Lance White. And at one point he's like, all right. He's like teaming up with Jim Rockford. He's all right. Let's just sit back and wait for clues. And he's like, wait for clues. What are you talking about? It's like, he's like, Jim, you've been doing this for a long time. Of course you know about waiting for clues. You sit back, a clue falls in your lap. You make an assumption. It turns out to be right. You solve the case. <laughs> and it's like, this is a guy who the cops love him. Um, the, the guy who's always trying to throw Rockford in jail. The police lieutenant loves this guy because he saved his life once. Everyone who meets him, like, oh, he saved my life once. Um, <laughs> he's constantly rescuing kidnapped uh, kids of millionaires. Things just happen easily for him. And he's the nicest guy in the world. But everything bad happens to Jim Rockford and everything good happens to Lance White. And it, it with, and he's like impeccably ethical to like a stupid degree where they get kidnapped by like a mob boss. And the mob boss is saying, you better stay quiet or I'm going to have you guys plugged. And he's just like, you know what? You'll never stop us. The forces of justice will always stop you. And Jim's just like, dude, shut up. But everything just falls into place for Lance White where he looks like the hero. That's what it sounds like you're talking okay. about. It, and he, he's but he's probably so nice. not not to not to that degree, obviously. But no, the the thing about this guy that I felt was really interesting is, and he was young, and so people would make he was the youngest person who worked there. Um, is that he would ask a lot of questions, and he would ask questions that you would think that by the time you're 25 or 26, you would know, and he didn't. And at first, I was like, what? How? How have you not you've like read something or seen something on TV? And then I realized that after the sort of initial thing that you would one would normally do by judging someone who asked a, what should be a pretty obvious question, maybe even a dumb question, is this is going to serve him well for the rest of his life. 
because he's not afraid to ask a question. He has not been sort of pounded into that mode where you have to sort of shy away from asking because you do not want to fall under the gaze of other people who will hold it against you because you didn't know. And I was like, that should be a lesson you should let, let kids learn because they stop wanting to ask questions, I think. The shitty thing about that, too, is that when that person does ask questions, there's a dozen people in that room that are thankful that they did. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And but I, I think it's not even necessarily so much fear as it is laziness mm-hmm. it's yeah. easier to assume yeah. that if things are laid out in a certain way that somebody somewhere sometime thought it through did a bunch of research to figure out the best possible way to organize whatever that thing is and that is why we do it that way because it's been figured out and so i don't have to think about it i can rely on authorities to have our best interest at heart and to have come up with the correct way to do a thing which is sadly woefully wrong. Hmm. I uh, just on every level. And like I I've experienced this on a firsthand level like on a daily basis in my job because I work in a public policy field where there'll be a question and somebody will say like, you know, blah blah blah, how do I do this? And we'll look up the answer and the answer will seem kind of weird. And we'll look into it like, why is it that this way? And invariably, the answer comes back because it has always been that way. <laughs> That's the worst answer. <laughs> Which is the worst answer yeah. and the one that I personally do not ever accept. And if the answer feels wrong, it comes up with a bad outcome and there doesn't seem to be any clear reason as to why it was done that way. I have absolutely no problem saying, okay, that's not a rule anymore. We're not doing that if until somebody can supply me with a reason that it has to be that way. Yeah, usually this is the dumbest answer. Getting back to old people ruining things, um, <laughs> the big, the worst answer, and it's a, a thing I hate of it, is that that this is the way it's always been done is such bullshit. Because what you're really doing is just deciding to not solve a problem. Absolutely. That clearly, that would not be the answer if it was a good answer. That it's it's just not to get too political, but this is the same time every every politician uses electability as their main argument for why you should vote for them. They're saying that because all of the other answers are insufficient because you don't have to convince somebody to vote for a really electable guy who has great policies and, it, you, and a great sense of charisma that you love because that would be making you do it. You don't have to convince me to do a thing I want to do. You only have to do that if it's a thing that sucks. And that's, it's, it's, it's the, this is the way it's always been done is the Wait, argument. Is, isn't electability the, literally the lowest common denominator among politicians, incumbent politicians? It's, well, not even necessarily. They're, at least, they're I mean, at least, hey, I, at least I'm electable. You, you <laughs> have least. Joe Biden, who is the quote unquote most electable Democrat in our current primary, whose major claim to fame in recent years is coming in third in the Democratic primary 12 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and also having to drop out in 1988 because of a plagiarism scandal. Something he's done since, too. Um, are we, I don't know if we're about to circle the, circle, uh, Joe Biden with sticks because is it, is it mean to beat up on him when he seems to be disintegrating on his own? <laughs> it seems if we really wanted to hurt him, we'd just give him a microphone. I, I wish it were just a thing where I could just laugh at him and not really worry about him as a thing. 
uh, as a, a real candidate who was actually going to make it into the election. But you never know. And no, we, we you never know. If we should have learned in the last election cycle that someone who's painfully awful is actually fucking dangerous. Yeah. That we shouldn't just laugh because don't worry, this problem will solve itself. <laughs> we should have learned that in 2016. That some people... The, that we should never just write somebody off as a joke and just go, no, that's fucking dangerous. That guy needs to go away. I, I will have to say he did one of his his uh, spoonerisms or whatever they are, malapropisms or brain farts, I suppose, is probably the better way to put them, is he was trying to do – he's trying to make some kind of a – dig i think at trump foreign policy somewhere know, syria or something like that and he said well when when my president did it president president my boss yeah <laughs> he, he literally could not remember the name of obama yeah he was talking about he can't something. even look up from the coattails Pre- he's writing president my boss yeah president my boss yeah joe you've got a problem <laughs> you need to stop and your problem is our problem so fucking go <laughs> Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Masturbating. Hey kids, rub your balls while masturbating.
waiting, looking for lumps. If you find a lump, then go to the doctor and get your testicle removed. Rub your testicles while masturbating or while not masturbating. or for checking it for cancer at the same time.